Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for March 5th, 2018. On today's show, we're going to be talking about a bunch of news, including some improvements to MoviePass, because we have become the official MoviePass podcast, obviously. And <laughs> um, we will be talking about the final Fast and Furious movie, the Roseanne trailer. Logan's Run remake gets a new director, and we'll be discussing the 90th annual Academy Awards, including the biggest winners and losers, biggest surprises and snubs, and more. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Serrata, and joining me on today's podcast is Weekend Editor Brad Oman. Hey, that's me. Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? And Writer Y Tran Bui. Hey, everyone. Okay, guys, before we get into the Academy Awards, let's run down the little bit of news that we have uh, before the we get into the awards discussion. And let's start off with um, with MoviePass. Uh, HC, you wrote this article up on the site about uh, MoviePass's taking some steps to improve their customer experience. We have given them flack in the past about their, you know, their app being unusable, their customer service being unreachable. Uh, they have they have updated their app. Their app is a little bit better, and it seems like they're going to be making some improvements to their customer service. What do we know? Yes. Yeah. So they not only have been getting flack from us, but from most of their um, subscription base. And uh, they have apparently been making moves to improve their MoviePass customer experience. And they're doing this by partnering with a uh, customer experience company called Task Us, as well as hiring a new VP of customer experience named Jake Peterson. So this is sort of an attempt to sort of rehaul their negative image that they've had uh, that they've kind of built up over the past year as their subscription base has been growing exponentially and they've been sort of unable to keep up with customer demands customer demands and uh, that this also is in the wake of their subscription subscription base nearly um, projected to nearly double by 2019. So CEO Mitch Lowe has projected that MoviePass will hit about um, 5 million paid subscribers by the end of the year with 
movie pass buying roughly 20% of all movie tickets. So that's a huge amount of, of uh, subscribers. Recently, they just hit 1.5 million subscribers. And to get over a double of that is amazing. And um, hopefully they'll be able to catch up with their subscription base and keep their subscription base happy as well, which I think is sort of the reasoning that they're starting to uh, take better steps with their customer experience. It is a little crazy that they are projecting that they will have 20% of all the movie buying public. I think that probably is in America, I'm assuming. Um, yeah, domestically. Domestically. At the end of the year, like that, um, you know, that's one out of every five people in that movie theater you're you're watching the movie with. Uh, you know, we talked about on Friday, uh, you know, them testing these new new ways of not allowing subscribers to buy tickets to certain movies or promoting certain movies. You know, if, if they get to the point where, you know, it's one out of every five or one out of every four people buying a movie ticket are buying with MoviePass, that could be dangerous or scary, don't you think? Uh, it could be if they continue to treat their customer base the way they have been in recent weeks, which is sort of as a leverage to work with other companies or other sort of revenue streams. But hopefully they'll be able to juggle sort of keeping their customers happy and actually working for their customers versus just use, <laughs> using their customers, yeah. which is a sort of harsh way to say it. But um, yeah, it's it's a little scary. It's kind of the beginning of every dystopian story, I feel like, <laughs> where a company controls like the majority of our uh, the way that we buy movies. Yeah, and we, we've been heavily skeptical on MoviePass actually being able to make a business, a profitable business out of this. Uh, but, you know, if they can capture that much of the market share, they can force a company like AMC, a, a theater chain like AMC, into doing deals for lower price tickets and maybe even getting a share of that uh, concession money. So uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm all of a sudden turning my opinion around, and I, I, I think that actually MoviePass is going to be around for the long term. I, I thought this was going to be you know, kind of a flash-in-the-pan uh, deal for a bunch of us uh, film fanatics. But I, th I think uh, – uh, for better or worse, uh, this will be around for some time. Um, but let's move on uh, f from that to Fast and the Furious. The original director of Fast and Furious, uh, Rob Cohen, has said he wants to helm the last film in the, in the franchise. Ben, what do we know? Yeah, so Rob Cohen was the guy who launched the entire Fast and Furious franchise with uh, 2001's The Fast and the Furious. This, the naming conventions of this franchise are totally insane. But yes, The Fast and the Furious is the first movie in the franchise. That's the one that Rob Cohen directed. He has not been back to direct another movie in the franchise. But in a new interview with uh, Screen Crush, he said, I always wished Universal would come back to me to direct the last one. Um, this is basically wishful thinking on his part. Um, the last Fast and Furious movie, we don't even really know what that is. We know that Vin Diesel has said that um, Fast 9 and Fast 10 are going to complete the final trilogy of the saga. Um, that could mean the Toretto family saga, and they could very easily do more spinoffs aside from the one that, that that's already planned with uh, Dwayne Johnson's character and Jason Statham's characters. Um, so, you know, the idea of uh, the Fast and Furious franchise coming to an end seems sort of ludicrous. Well, 
<laughs> Sorry. Uh, sort of. Um, <laughs> sort Come of, on, that, uh, that that was a good unintended <laughs> pun right there. <laughs> yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, it seems. Um, yeah, ludicrous because uh, <laughs> those movies just make so much money. So um, I don't see Universal, you know, wrapping it up anytime soon. Maybe what he means is I would like to do the last one in that saga. So like Fast 10. Um, personally, I would much rather see somebody like Justin Lin come back into the fold and direct that movie uh, because he, you know, for better or worse, um, the Fast and Furious franchise is Justin Lin's basically. I know Cohen started it, but uh, Lin was the one who saved it from the brink of extinction and turned it into what it is today. Um, Rob Cohen also in this interview said, I started out to do a different thing, but the thing that I did uh, implanted this world and these characters deeply in that audience. And he said, most of the time when you go on the internet and read which was the best Fast and Furious, it's almost always mine. And I just think that's like factually inaccurate. There's no way that people say, the, the, the first movie is the best one. I think Fast Five is uh, by far the most beloved film in this franchise thus far. So I don't know if Rob Cohen's coming back, but uh, yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. You, you know what? We like to give Rob Cohen a lot of flack. You know, he made movies like the Triple X uh, film with uh, Vin Diesel. He's not a great director, but I mean, excuse he... me. Triple X is a great movie. Is it? <laughs> I, I enjoy it. I think it's a perfectly fine action movie i've not seen it serious so i have like a more affinity for it actually huh i have not seen it since it was in theaters but i remember thinking how ridiculously stupid it was when i saw it in theaters um but uh i was gonna say i think he does have a point aside from you know that lie that his movie is the favorite among fans because i have not heard one single person say that but he does have a point he he did kind of you know a director is is responsible for a lot of a lot of little things, but the a lot of directors I have talked to, a lot of filmmakers I have talked to, said half of their work is in casting the movie, and the other half is the production. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Rob Cohen is the guy that put these actors in these roles that have become become iconic. Maybe they haven't become iconic because of him, but uh, you know, he does deserve some credit for for putting that family together oh uh, absolutely brad do you want to see rob cohen direct another fast and furious movie not particularly he's <laughs> uh he's just i don't know i don't think he really has any of the i don't know the magic touch that he used to have to make movies that were a little bit more fun and, and crazy I, I like i think the first fast and the furious is uh, good for what it is as far as being a point break remake about street racing. Um, but, you know, he just hasn't really shown that he still has much skill behind the camera to match what's on screen now in the Fast and Furious franchise. So I just I, I would just as soon let the franchise keep going without him and just don't even worry about it. <laughs> I have to go to our triple our X fan here. H.T. Bowie. What do you think about um, about uh, Rob Cohen coming back to the Fast and Furious franchise? I'm actually sort of apathetic towards it. Um, I yeah, I I thought also that the first Fast and Furious movie was fine, um, but I I will watch probably a Fast and Furious film regardless of who is directing it, just because it they are so over the top and enjoyable. I'm sure Rob Cohen will folded nicely to sort of the 
escalating series of action sequences that the Fast and Furious franchise is now. Yeah, I'm, I'm just not sure he would get the campiness and the fun of the franchise that has kind of come in, in the sequels. But uh, I don't know. We'll have to see. Uh, last night during the Academy Awards, uh, a bunch of trailers debuted. Uh, uh, the Mary Poppins trailer, the trailer for the next season of House of Cards, and also a trailer for the Roseanne reboot that uh, not so coin- uh, coincidentally is uh, an ABC show, which uh, the, the Academy Awards aired on ABC. Uh, so uh, I- I'm assuming we all saw this trailer. Um, I wanted to give you my thoughts quickly. Uh you know, I was actually a big fan of the original Roseanne series. I'm not usually a sitcom fan, but I feel like, uh, you know, it was the first time seeing a family on TV that it felt more real or closer to, you know, families I knew than um, and uh, than, than like a lot of other TV families. And I, I thought it was funny and I liked the characters. But uh, I don't know, seeing this trailer, I'm trying to think of a way to explain this. Um you know, I used to be a, a fan of professional wrestling, okay? And there was a group that was together in professional wrestling called uh, Degeneration X and NWO. And, they were, you know, this group of these big wrestlers. And I think like two years ago at WrestleMania, I was watching WrestleMania. I don't watch wrestling anymore, but every once in a while I'll watch WrestleMania. And they had the group come out on on, uh, on the, uh, the platform to receive uh, – they were getting inducted into the Hall of Fame. And seeing these guys that used to be these like this cool hip group uh, in like, you know, kind of wobbling on stage because, you know, of all the injuries from their career and like they've grown old and they're past their prime and seeing them together was kind of sad. It was more sad than uh, the fun reunion that I would have liked. And I I, I think uh, watching this trailer for Roseanne, I, I guess I think made me feel like I felt like with with that reunion it, it feels like I don't know I, I'm not sure like this is something that like maybe I think we wanted but I'm not sure it's gonna be good HD do you have any thoughts on this I've only I only saw a couple episodes of Roseanne back when it was airing and I I get what you're saying Peter I think that it feels sort of like it's past its time now and it's sort of of a bygone era that we're watching and kind of limping on and doesn't really make sense for to come back right now, which I feel like is the case for a lot of the fun nineties and two thousands reboots that are happening. So yeah, it's, I think it's <laughs> the Roseanne, like many of the reboots that we've seen should have had its, you know, time to, to be appreciated in history and not have to be brought back as a undead zombie. Yeah. of itself it's also interesting that this isn't kind of like one of those um you know boy meets world reboots or fuller house reboots where it's about the kids and you know the main characters from the original it's not like you know the force awakens of of tv reboots it seems like it's they're just bringing it back and it's all the characters older um brad i know you're probably the biggest fan of sitcoms on this podcast what did you think of this trailer Brad, you're muted. I hate myself! Uh, I think that's a weird designation to give me, but I guess I'll go along with it. Um, I feel—I don't know. I wasn't the biggest fan of Roseanne when it was on. I didn't. It's not that I disliked it. It just wasn't something that I went out of my way uh, to watch. 
Um, but it's, I don't know, I, I'm vaguely interested to see just because I kind of like the idea of seeing what, you know, the blue collar family that the Connors are and how they're portrayed in contemporary society instead. Because I think there's a lot of sitcoms today that don't really deal with a lot of the issues that Roseanne tackled in the 90s. And I think that there's a lot that they can still do today in contemporary society as a, a family that is still middle class, blue collar, that kind of thing. I just don't know if whether or not this, the comedy factor will have aged as well. You know, I'm not sure if Roseanne has evolved enough as a comedian to, you know, continue the story of the Connors, not have it feel dated like it's still a sitcom stuck in the 90s. Um, but I, I, yeah, I don't know this, I, I kind of like the idea of the, the fact that they brought everybody back and it, ha- it's, you know, it's, it's 20 years later, uh, and they're going to introduce new characters along with it. And, you know, seeing the kids grown up and having kids of their own, it's, it's an interesting concept for sure, but I, I hesitate to be confident in the fact that they can do anything more than just mine for nostalgia and actually create something that is more than just a rehash of what they did before. Ben, what is your take on the Roseanne trailer? Um, I'm going to bring it back to your wrestling uh, analogy, Peter, and I'm just going to tap out of this one because I never, <laughs> I've never seen any episodes of Roseanne. I don't really know anything about the show, so um, I, I think Brad and, and HT have uh, said everything that I know about the show. You know, covered all of the the general aspects of the show that I'm aware of. So yeah, and it's also interesting. Brad mentioned that like Roseanne was not a thing that he went out of his way to see because I don't think anybody actually went out of their way to see Roseanne. At least from my memory of it, it was kind of like one of those things that you'd always catch on like reruns on on tv somewhere on cable um but i always enjoyed it when i would run into it but it wasn't you know it wasn't obviously uh it wasn't my uh tgif every friday checking it out um in my childhood uh anyways uh let's move on to another remake and that is of logan's run this has been in the works in hollywood for a long time i think brian singer was going to do it a bunch of directors were going to do it now it has landed a new director and a new writer brad what do we know this project has been in the works for over a decade uh if you go back to the slash film archives you'll see stories going as far back as 2007 with news on development of this project. Uh, you're right, Brian Singer was one of the directors uh, and potentially slated to direct at one point, as was Joseph Kaczynski, and that was even before he directed Tron Legacy. And at one point, Nicholas Winding Refn was even uh, lined up to direct a remake of Logan's Run. Uh, so it's been ongoing for a long time, and just now, apparently, Warner Brothers has closed a deal for Simon Kinberg, the producer of the X-Men franchise, who is currently working on X-Men dark phoenix as his first time uh directorial debut uh they want they're going to have him direct and they're bringing in the hunger games writer peter craig for the script interestingly enough simon kinberg was uh brought in to write a treatment of the remake and produce the logan's run remake back in 2015 so, um, so as of now it seems like maybe he's not writing the script anymore or if he uh has involvement with the script maybe peter craig is just touching up or like rewriting what he did when he was hired on the project back in 2015. That's not uh, entirely clear, but uh, it seems like this is, could be the iteration of the project that actually moves forward. Um, it seems like it's the longest, farthest along that they've gotten uh, with the, the solid or the, the right people. And, you know, we'll see if they can actually pull it off. The one thing that I'm 
I'm uh, most curious about, and I don't know if this is just Deadline being short-sighted um, and, I don't know, ignorant of the situation, but they, they're saying that apparently Warner Brothers uh, wants to replicate the success of Blade Runner 2049, but... <laughs> But Blade Runner 2049 wasn't what you would call a success for the studio, because even though it's revered by critics and fans of the original Blade Runner, uh, it was a movie that cost $150 million to make, and it only made uh, $240-something million in the global box office. And it didn't do anywhere near as much business as the studio hoped it would. So I'm not sure why they would want to replicate that success. Um, but, you know, if they want to, you know win over fans and go home with a single Oscar, then I guess that's, you know, there are less admirable things they could be doing. <laughs> I just wonder, you know, I, I, I loved Logan's run as a kid. I just wonder if it would, if in today's age, it, um, rebooting it would, uh, would be something people want to see. Ben, would you want to see a remake of Logan's run? I mean, I kind of feel like Michael Bay's The Island already was one, right? Like, that's, I don't know if there were any legal actions uh, brought forth yeah. against the people who wrote that movie. I don't remember if that's actually the case or not. But that is that movie is basically a carbon copy of Logan's Run. And it was like a modernized, you know, very Michael Bay futuristic kind of film. And um, I, I don't know if uh, modern audiences would would take well to a, a remake because the original Logan's run is very dated now. I watched it for the first time just a couple of years ago. And um, yeah, it, it seems like an old movie. But I again, I think Michael Bay probably did as good a job as you can do bringing it into a, a modern context. I just don't know if it's if enough time has passed between now and the island in 2004 or whenever that came out um, for people to be hungry for this kind of story again. Yeah. And I feel like there's been other uh, movies that have also tapped into this kind of same idea, like in time, which I never saw, but I think has some kind of somewhat the same concept. Um, I don't know. It's, it's, it'll be interesting to see. I know Simon Kinberg has been involved with the star Wars series. Uh, you know, so he, and he's been involved with some, some great, uh, films, so maybe this will turn out good. Maybe it will actually end up happening. I'll believe it when I actually see, you know, filming begin. But uh, because you know, I've been writing about this thing for what, what Brad said, what over ten years, eleven years now. So <laughs> we'll see. Uh, but let's let's now get into the Academy Awards, guys. Um, uh, you know, we're, we're not here to like recap the Academy Awards. People can go to slashfilm.com and find a full list of winners. Uh, and, and uh, which Brad did a live blog. Uh, thank you, Brad. Uh, and um, but I, I want to talk about you know let's start by talking about the the ceremony in general. So not the winners and losers, but like the presentation of the show. Um, I'll start things off by saying I think it felt a little longer, I, even though it probably wasn't as long as past years. It just felt longer. Um, as much as I love that, uh, Frozen-esque, uh, stage setup that they, they built, um, and I like Jimmy Kimmel, but a lot of the stuff kind of fell flat. I felt like, um, you know, going to the movie theater next door at Manchin East and surprising people with, uh, celebrities was, you know, seemed like on paper that would be a great, uh, social kind of, like, stunt, uh, but I don't know, I, I felt like it fell flat 
I, th- I think uh, as, as someone in my Oscar party said last night, I think it's hilarious that uh, Army Hammer uh, thought it was thought he was a celebrity and, and joined them. Uh, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, I'll, I'll get to you, your reactions first before we uh, get into questions. But uh, Brad, what did you think of the ceremony in general? First of all, whoever was being mean to Army Hammer, tell them to just like hey, shut up. I'm not saying he's not a good actor. I just don't no, think he's like I a know, guy that he... like people would be surprised about. Like, oh my god, Army Hammer came into my movie theater. I, I would love it if Army Hammer came into my movie theater. Are you kidding me? That would be that would be amazing. Army Hammer's awesome, especially if he starts dancing like he doesn't call me by your name. We can just have a dance party right then and there. Wearing his tracksuits. And by yeah. the way, also before you start, you know. There were some great montages, but there was just way too many video montages. Like, it was like, I just want to get through with the ceremony at some point. Honestly, I would prefer if they would do more montages. I think the montages are consistently the best part of the Oscars. Uh, the one that they did um, earlier in the show that was the like the tribute to 90 years of movies and thanking audiences for going to it, that was an incredible montage yeah, using the... The Forrest Gump and the Love Actually score and uh, movie clips from all across, you know, the decades of the Oscars have been around. That was awesome. And even the, the montages they used before the the acting categories were great. Um, some of them even kind of had like a, a little bit of a fuck you to people that are like against, you know, representation in movies and all the, you know, nonsensical supporters of he must not be named. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to see more of that. It's The ceremony is always over long. Um, but you know, it's just kind of what you expect now and you kind of just deal with it. HT, what were your thoughts on the ceremony? I also thought the ceremony was lackluster, not just because of the length or the montages, although I enjoyed the first montage, but after the next <laughs> few came along, I was like, okay, just, it's almost, it's 1145 PM my in Eastern time. I'm ready to go to bed. Um, but I think it was because that the ceremony found itself at this really interesting sort of turning point between the uh, social and uh, sexual politics upheaval that's going on through Hollywood and sort of trying to cater more towards the cheery viral moments and like apolitical moments that the ceremony has kind of been known for. And I think that's why for a lot of it, it felt like it didn't really have a message or like anything that really stood out or was distinctive until the acceptance speeches started rolling in. Like um, Guillermo del Toro's speech was really great, as was Francis McDormand's speech. It was amazing. But it felt like they were sort of trying to figure out how to be, how to to bring in these issues of like Time's Up and uh, the Me Too movement without offending anyone. And Jimmy Kimmel actually did a really good job of sort of walking that line. But I think the ceremony itself felt like it didn't really know what it was trying to do. And whenever it had sort of those moments of diversity, sometimes it felt a little bit self-congratulatory. Like, oh, look, we had like all this diversity in the movies. But the only time I really felt like they were trying to do something or galvanize something was when an actual person of color was trying was talking about like representation like I think during during one of the many montages they all kind of blended together um a, I think this was the one about uh diversity itself Kumail <laughs> Nanjani uh was was had a really good a lot of really good things to say about um I think he said 
uh, it's time for white people to start trying to see themselves in movies about people of color. That's what I've been doing for the past, like for my entire life. So it's time for them to sort of uh, do that in, res- yeah. in respect. And I think like that was those moments like that really made the ceremony for me. And um, otherwise, it just kind of felt like, I don't know, a little bit listless, just like. I don't really know what the ceremony's trying to go for. It was it was beautiful in some parts, but yeah, the montages kind of dragged, and it just yeah. And the stunt itself was kind of a repeat from last year too, which is the well, look at all these normal people and how they're yeah they're normal. Yeah, and um, I think it's interesting. One of the guys that was at uh, my Oscar party that I went to, by the way, I brought uh, uh, Sally Hawkins deviled eggs. To the uh, to the Oscar party um, ah, from I, I brought um, mushroom frittata ah uh, <laughs> someone brought a uh, peach cobbler from um, call me by <laughs> your name anyways uh, n- not to get into that but uh, one of the guys at my, my party uh, Jeff mentioned uh, it's interesting how social political this year's awards or how the Academy Awards has be- become because uh, if you remember I think like what well, like maybe. In the mid 2000s, Michael Moore won an award, uh, maybe for Bowling for Columbine, maybe for Fahrenheit 9/11, and he said something about George Bush and like got booed by even like liberals in the audience. It was like, and it, I remember the outcry of like people being like, you know, this is a celebration, this isn't a place for politics and and complaining and whatever. And it just it, it is interesting that we have the, the the it has changed with our culture, uh, the ceremony, uh, and it's become. Mm-hmm part of the norm uh ben what are your feelings on the ceremony at large uh i loved it i've got to say i mean i am right there with brad like give me all the montages make the whole (laughs) damn thing montages because i got so much enjoyment and pleasure out of watching those um i think the production design was gorgeous like whoever designed that the directors of the broadcast like i feel like they should win an emmy for making the oscars because the whole thing was like so well put together and it was yeah just so beautiful to look at all the the stage work and the um the costumes and everything i mean like they really i feel like they did a really great job making it like a piece of entertainment um in terms of the uh bringing everybody across the street to the to the theater like all of those bits can go as far as i'm concerned i would be really happy to never see them try anything like that ever again and then uh I, like a lot of the jokes just sort of fell flat like the the star wars the last jedi cast like nothing they said i mean they were all doing the best they could with the lines that they <laughs> that the yeah. writers gave them but like none of those jokes landed and it was so sad to me to see you know uh Mark Hamill and Kelly Marie Tran and Oscar Isaac, like these such talented performers just um, saddled with really terrible, embarrassing jokes. And uh, to hear like crickets in the room is just like cringeworthy. But other than that, I I mean, I think um, I I really loved the ceremony. I had a really great time watching it. Probably my favorite Oscars in a long time. And I also really loved how spread out a lot of the actual awards were. It didn't get boring because it wasn't the same three or four people coming up and accepting 10 awards over the course of the night. It was like, I thought they did a pretty good job 
Uh, not that the Oscars ceremony itself has anything to do yeah. with this, but you know, just I, I enjoyed the fact that you could see a bunch of different uh, different people from different movies coming up to uh, to represent. Now, the one good joke I did like was, uh, well, I mean, I enjoyed a lot of the, the the jokes, but the the one joke that stands out to me was the jet ski thing with uh, Jimmy Kimmel offering a jet ski for the shortest Oscar speech. Uh, a, a jet ski worth what sixteen thousand dollars or something like that. Uh, and <laughs> Helen Mirren was presenting it uh, like a, g- a game show. Um, I thought it would have been great if, like, you know, you got to see, like, one of the, like, you know, the guy that did, like, uh, the documentary short film or the live action short film or animated short film go up there and accept the award and be like, uh, it, it just basically his speech be like, I'm selling the jet ski to fund my next film. Thank you. <laughs> but, like, it never, I feel like there was no payoff. Because no one actually took the opportunity to uh, to waste their acceptance speech. <laughs> I mean, the payoff was the after we all shared. <laughs> yes, Brad. Yes. <laughs> Anyways, uh, okay. Let's uh, talk about um, what. Uh, wh- who are your favorite winners from last night's Academy Awards, uh, Ben? Um, I really loved the idea of uh, of Jordan Peele winning best screenplay for Get Out. I thought that was really terrific because I feel like that was the category that he really, frankly, had the biggest, the best shot of winning. Um, I would have loved to see him win best director, but I also was really, you know, pleased with uh, Del Toro winning that category and then Shape of Water winning best picture um, was terrific. I mean, I, I love that movie and I think uh, it's well deserved and. The yeah, just seeing Jordan Peele get so excited and Keegan Michael Key. I'm sure you guys have seen the photos floating around on Twitter and Instagram of of uh, the the Key and Peele co-star being so excited at his friend winning that. Yeah, I mean it just it's so heartwarming to see. Um, and Del Toro, who's just like the nicest guy in the world and a true film lover. Yeah. Um, seeing him, you know, finally get to. Uh, you know, ascend to this this vaulted place in the industry um, right in front of our eyes was just a, yeah, a really special thing. I think the best director award was my uh, is the thing that I liked the most and hated the most because, you know, it was great to see Guillermo win that award. I feel so happy for him and I feel like, you know, he's finally gotten his due in Hollywood. But at the same time, I really wish Greta Gerwig could have won for Lady Bird. Um, so it was kind of a defeat in a win at the same time. Uh, Brad, what was your favorite win of the night? Uh, you guys definitely named some of my, my favorites. Uh, Jordan Peele and Guillermo del Toro were absolutely deserving uh, of their trophies. Um, the speech that Francis McDormand gave was so lively and timely and important and just tr- so true to who she is. Um, it was great that she got all the you know, female nominees and uh, even people who the, who weren't nominated, female people who work on behind the scenes and movies and the actors and, uh, or the actresses rather to stand up and like see each other and, you know, just to see that kind of support and excitement. Um, it was it was really great and, and energizing. Yeah, that, uh, was, that, that was emotional. I know uh, Ben wrote an article for the site. We were going to mention it later. But uh, Ben, do you want to talk about your article a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Um, Frances McDormand wrapped up her speech by saying that she had two words for the audience. And those two words are inclusion writer. <clears throat> and basically, um, for people who don't know, it's like a, a line in the contract that uh, people can use to uh, essentially demand 
um, diversity and equality behind the scenes on, on a film production and in front of the camera as well. Um, and this is something that McDormand has said that after like a 35 year career, she's just now learning about this. And I think a lot of people had no idea that this was a thing. And for her to use that platform to spread the word about this in a room full of Hollywood A-listers who can actually, you know, uh, take those words to heart and and really do something about it, I feel like is a, a game changer for Hollywood. It's one of those things that Hollywood loves to talk and and they love you know, hearing themselves talk and, and, you know, people love, uh, you know, being a part of a moment and, and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. But a lot of these issues in society seem too big to be able to, you know, they almost seem too big to be able to, to attack in any meaningful way. But I feel like McDormand basically provided all of these A-list people in, in that room with the ammunition that they need to physically go out and and really do something about um, representation in Hollywood. And I feel like if half the people in that room add those inclusion writers to their contracts uh, moving forward, then that's going to have like a significant measurable difference in the way that movies and, and television are made uh, in the next few years. So I just think it's a really cool thing that she did. And um, yeah, just like a, a very legitimately important thing that could really make a big difference in Hollywood moving forward. For sure. Um, we are running a little bit uh, long with this podcast, but I do want to go to HT. Uh, she wrote an article uh, uh, basically rounding up the biggest uh, snubs and surprises at this year's Oscars. HT, what were the biggest uh, snubs and surprises? So the biggest snub of the night uh, was Lady Bird, which went home empty-handed despite having five nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Acting Nods for Saoirse Ronan and Laurie Metcalf. And it's such a phenomenal film but had a, a, and had five nominations, which is a sizable amount, but went home without any of them, which is a, a very sad snub. And um, But hopefully something that won't, Greta Gerwig won't see in the future because this is her solo directorial debut and hopefully the beginning of a very illustrious career. Uh, other surprises uh, include uh, Get Out for uh, Best Screenplay. Uh, we were talking about Jordan Peele earlier having the, our, one of our favorite wins. This is actually kind of a toss-up in the Best Original Screenplay win because that was kind of up for grabs, mostly for three billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri, or possibly the Big Sick. But Get Out came and uh, took that award, which was a really exciting uh, win for Jordan Peele, and who is now officially an Oscar winner and the first African-American writer to ever win Best Original Screenplay. Uh, snubs Martin McDonough for... Um, best original screenplay and he kind of got shut out of he got shut out of the best director um nominations too and um three billboards only went home with two acting wins for francis mcdormand and sam rockwell uh and uh, another big surprise is roger deakins which was one of my favorite wins as well because he is a an a legendary um cinematographer who has been nominated 14 times and finally got his, his first Oscar win for Blade Runner 2049 and he absolutely deserves it because he did phenomenal work in that movie. So those are some of the um, snubs and surprises from this year's ceremony. You can read the rest of the snubs and surprises on slashfilm.com. 
and we have a lot more coverage on SlashFilm.com. We have coverage of the Razzies. We have coverage of, you know, who is left out of the memoriam segment and, uh, you know, a whole lot more. Everything we have mentioned on today's podcast, you can go to SlashFilm.com and read more of or find the links in the show notes. HT, where can people find more of your work online? You can find me on on SlashFilm.com and on Twitter at HTranBooey. Brad, where can people find you? Slashfilm.com. You can probably find me if you search Ask Jeeves if you really wanted to. Um, you can also check out my podcast on iTunes called Go Flicks Yourself. And I'm on Twitter at Ethan underscore Anderton. Ben, where can people find you? You can find me at Slashfilm.com as well. And you can track me down on Twitter at Ben Pears. Uh, you can find this podcast, Slash Film Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, all the popular podcast apps. Please go rate and review us on iTunes, spread the word, tell your friends, and we'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>